Well, this morning we are going to continue in our series and Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to take the next two weeks, this week and next week, to cover the Lord's Prayer. And so as we do that this morning, would you pray with me? Father, help us this morning. You, in this passage, Lord, you teach us how to pray. So Lord, I pray that, that this would this would take root in our hearts. And Lord, that you would take a passage that is probably, it's one of the most familiar passages. And nearly everyone in this room will know this passage. And Lord, the, the scary thing about that is that we begin um, to trust what all the conclusions are that we've always drawn about it. And the whole point of this is to bring us to you. So Lord, would you let us come to you? Let us see what you want us to see. Let our hearts be stirred by what we see here. And let our prayer lives be radically changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So we did a series on the Lord's Prayer back in 2020. And so if you would like to go more in depth where each week we took a different little section of it and worked through that, um, if I'm remembering correctly, I was gonna look this up, but I think it was like, that was when we were all virtual and out I think is when we um, did that. And that wasn't the plan, but it was an interesting timing. So that is all on our website. You can go back and, and listen to those messages. But in the next two weeks, we're gonna cover it from a little broader um, point of view and from a little um, bit more of just the the big picture idea of what's going on. And today I'm going to be covering um, the beginning and the heart posture of praying this prayer, that Jesus is giving instructions here on how to pray and and he's talking first about um, preparing ourselves and, and asking what kind of a prayer is this that we're actually praying. And then next week Jeff is going to get more into the details of of the value of this being a daily rhythm and what it looks like to, to ask God um, and, and build in that rhythm. And, and you're not going to want to miss that because uh, the Lord's Prayer um, was incredibly instrumental in Jeff's life and has been completely transformational. And I'm just telling you as an experience, as, a, um, as someone who preaches God's Word, look, there are, I mean, all of God's Word is inspired. Um, there are passages that God has used to just radically change my life. And those are the ones that I just love I love like above and beyond to, to preach, and I know for, for Jeff that is the, the case for next week. The reality that we know is that most Christians wish that they had a stronger prayer life. Most of the time when I talk to people as they're growing, I, I, when I ask questions about prayer, I often get some version of, well, I, I, wish, I wish it was better. Like, yeah, I pray, and I, I feel like I pray a lot. There's, there's a certain volume to it. In some ways, it's this spiritual discipline that we do more than anything else. We, we struggle a lot of times to be in the Word or in different disciplines, but, but we often, like, prayer is the thing that we just, like, kind of call out to God at different times. And we're not alone in that. Throughout history, this has been a challenge for God's people because after all, how do human beings actually approach God and talk to him? How do we do that in a way that, that understands the differences between us and him 
in a way that, that exalts him as holy and, and as God, but also with the familiarity that Jesus instructs us to, to go to him as, as, as God instructs us to, to call him Father and to approach him? How do we balance between wanting to pray for other needs and then the, sometimes it seems like selfishly praying for our own needs? What do we do when, when we're in situations where we feel like, well, I know this is what's really on my heart, but I can't really, I don't feel like I can say that. Not to mention the fact of how do we do that in public? Often, I mean, like the, the fear of public prayer is, is, a, is a real fear among people in the church. How do I do that with one another? And Jesus has just, gone, just done, gotten done saying in this sermon that we should not pray like the hypocrites. So he started with, with a negative about prayer. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And I can imagine people sitting there and thinking and, and hearing all of these things. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, and if I try to put myself in that position, I, I look at it and I think, I'd be pretty discouraged at that point. Because I'd be thinking, look, I, Jesus, I'm already struggling with this whole dynamic and trying to figure out how I'm supposed to pray. I've already listened to all these religious experts praying in a certain way, and I think, I don't sound like them when I pray. I don't, am I saying the wrong thing? Am I saying it in the wrong way? Am I asking for the wrong things? Like, Jesus, my confidence level isn't very high. And now you start out with saying, well, don't pray like all of them. And so right now, they may be thinking, like, well, then what do we do? How do we pray? Well, he knows that. He knows what we need before we even ask. And he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So when Jesus tells us how to pray, we should pay attention. Now this is a prayer that many of us have prayed countless times. And one of the problems with praying something like this so many times is the meaning of it can start to fade. I'm going to do something dangerous here. Could, could be dangerous. I'm asking you to trust me. Just curious, how many in here, and I'll ask you to raise your hand in a second here, but how many of you, what I'm asking is, how many of you, by show of hands, grew up in a church where the Lord's Prayer was said either on a weekly basis or a pretty regular basis? So that'd be like Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, like all that. Raise that, okay. Look around for a second. No, raise them, raise them again. Look around. This is why, one of the reasons why when, okay, now you can put them down. Don't worry, like, okay. This is one of the reasons when somebody says to me, if I'm sharing the gospel out and I invite somebody to church or whatever, and they say, well, that's a Baptist church. And I'm like, well, kind of. I mean, like, 
you're not going to feel out of place if, that's, if you're from a different background or whatever. Like we're Baptist in the sense of our doctrine and what we believe about God's word and what we believe some particulars about, you know, just the Christian faith. And so, yes, doctrinally, that's the case. But the people of our church are from all kinds of different backgrounds. And so this prayer, so for many of you, and by the way, I'm one of those people too that grew up in a church where I could, um, I could recite this and, and we recited it often. But I think you'd agree, if you grew up like that, that one of the dangers is how just memorized it becomes and how you could just say it. That you could, if you grew up saying the Lord's Prayer, you could say it while you're doing the dishes, you could say it while you're driving, you could say it like while you're, you know, playing a sport or hunting a deer. Like you, while you're shooting a deer, you could say the Our Father, right? Or you could say the Lord's Prayer. Just total muscle memory, like you just, you just come out. And what happens in that are two things. One, it becomes just meaningless words, and it becomes the very empty phrase that Jesus is warning not to do. So obviously Jesus is not answering the empty phrase problem by giving us something else that will turn into an empty phrase. So that is one danger. The other danger is we start to define things in the prayer the way that we want to define them. And we end up praying something that we don't even realize what we're actually asking for or what we're actually praying. And so we want to look at that today. But what are we actually praying? And do we actually want to pray it? He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's a certain importance to beginnings in a conversation, right? certain level of, of just social normalcy that we, that we have. I'll give you an example. Um, this is totally hypothetical, has never happened on any given day, but let's just say I work in an office. And let's just say in that office there's a sweet woman at the front desk. Just call her Leslie. <laughs> and let's just say that I walk in kind of rushed and running around or whatever, and I start by saying, hey, Leslie, could you please do... And have that interrupted by, good morning, Leslie. Right. Good morning, Leslie. Could you please do this for me? So there's that hypothetical situation where we feel like, if you've ever been in that situation where someone jumps the gun and like says, like, hey, I need you to do this. And like, hey, how are you? It's good to see you today. And we know that socially, that's kind of an important thing. And sometimes that happens here with our prayers. If you've ever been in that situation where you think, okay, no, I need to greet God properly first. Before I start like rattling off all these other things, I need, I need to do the formalities. I need to say, dear God. Sometimes we, sometimes we do it with something like this, or sometimes we just, um, we just jump ahead and we, we say just like, dear God, or our Father, or Heavenly Father, or something like that. But some kind of greeting to get the formality out of the way, and then we quickly go on about the other things that we want to pray about. Like, and, and if we're honest on our heart, the first thing on our heart are all the things that we need, the things that we want to ask God about. Now, this is not a, a guilt trip. God is, God is not Leslie. I love Leslie, and she's right. I should greet her formally. God is not upset like a parent who, whose kid who asks for money before saying hello. What he's saying here and this is important, is what Jesus is instructing 
is he's instructing us something that is actually a gift to us and is for our good. So it isn't for God's benefit that Jesus instructs us to start with our Father in heaven. It is for our benefit. It is for us. I thought last week Jeff did a really good job of pointing out that Jesus, when responding to worry, is not giving a bunch of techniques to deal with worry. He's not telling us like, hey, don't worry about those things because you're strong enough, you're smart enough, you'll figure it out. Here's some techniques and ways to kind of deal with that anxiety or stress. He responds to our worry with a person, with a relationship. He is offering you intimacy with God so that better than trying to control all things, you can trust the one who controls all things. And that is how he's setting the stage here in the Lord's Prayer. The first line is not a formal greeting like a lawyer in a courtroom saying your honor. He is saying start with reminding yourself who you are talking to. The the holy God who is your Father. Our Father, hallowed be your name. He is holy the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one whose name is above every other name, the one who makes the nations to rise and to fall and whose hand is even on a single sparrow falling to the ground. To be reminded of his holiness and his power and his might and his glory. As Proverbs 9 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Like there's something about viewing God rightly and orienting myself around him and saying, this is who you are. You are the Holy One. There's something about that 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 brings wisdom, that gives insight, that sets the stage, that orients ourselves for prayer. This Holy God and he is your Father. We should both be shaken and comforted in coming to God in prayer like this. Both aware that we are approaching the throne of grace. And we do so with boldness because of his love for us. This should be the tension we always feel in prayer. And I'll confess that I don't always. And there are times where I've decided like, okay, I need to, I need to just spend some time in praying because my mind is not where I am even understanding who I am praying to. But oh, how our prayer life changes when we begin with who we are talking to rather than our circumstances. Like think, what, what do you need today? Well, how much better to begin with knowing you're addressing the one who provides all things? What are you concerned about today? How much better to begin with reminding yourself you are talking to the one who holds the entire world in his hands? What do you desire today? How much better to begin by reminding yourself you are talking to your good father who gives good gifts to his children? What are you struggling with? How much better to begin by reminding yourself that God demonstrates his love that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you? 
So we start our prayer with that. Jesus instructs us to start our prayer there. Not as a superstition or a magic chant, and not so God will feel respected and then hear our prayers, but as Jesus intends that you would remind yourself of who it is you are talking to and what he has said his relationship with you is. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we reoriented ourselves to who we are dressing, and now Jesus says, and now reorient your heart around what you desire and what is good. Now, as we've said many times, this is a sermon about the kingdom. This is how the kingdom functions. This is what is valuable in the kingdom. He's talked about rewards and treasures, and he's going to go on and talk about that more. But he's setting up, this is the kingdom. The kingdom has come. It is here. It is at hand. And this is how it is manifested here. The spirit of the kingdom and the Beatitudes, the centrality of the heart over external actions, how people treat one another in the kingdom, who we live for in the kingdom. And Jesus says, pray pray like this. We want that kingdom here. And it begs the question, do we really want that kingdom here? Because there's a way in which I can answer that and say, well, yeah, of course I want God's kingdom here. Like, I'm a Christian, so of course I want that. But when we really think about it, of what, after, in the context of everything that Jesus is saying here, we have to ask the question, when we ask that his kingdom come, what kind of a kingdom are we thinking about? For many of us, it's some version of our own kingdom. So often we find ourselves going to God and being upset with him for not giving us things according to our own will, according to our own kingdom. So ultimately, much of, much of our anger or frustration with God is that he doesn't acknowledge that it's my kingdom come and my will be done. And I know that's hard and I've been in that place too, but we have to ask the question, whose kingdom And what is that kingdom? Am I just thinking about my plans, my life, my comfort, my desires? Or am I really listening to Jesus and what he says his kingdom is? And sometimes we it gets a little more decentralized. We say, no, 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 I know it's not about me. I know it's not about my stuff or my, any of this stuff, but, but like I look around the world and I want the world to look more like the kingdom. And so that's what I'm praying for. And so we'll often say things. I hear this all the time. Like, well, our problem is we've kicked God out of our country and out of our schools and, and we want him back. And I understand the sentiment. I understand like the, the gripping at that. But, but what I want to point out is we try to point out all the time is no one kicks God out of anyone anywhere okay God cannot be kicked out of anywhere and when we say his kingdom comes he's talking about something specific 
And if we don't understand that, if we say, well, that's the problem, it's those external markers of that, the Ten Commandments aren't posted everywhere and, and, and those different things. And if we think that that's what the kingdom come means, then that's what we're going to be praying for. And that's what we think, that's what we're expecting. And we, we, your kingdom come means all those against God will, will get what's coming to them. And we'll finally have God back in the center of our schools and our government and everyone will realize that I'm right. And not a single thing that I just said has anything to do with the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Not at all. And so we need to confront that and say, okay, what kingdom? Because if that is your picture of the kingdom, God back is the figurehead of our country and of our schools, even though, by the way, don't know that there are any more genuine believers then than there are now. But culture has a power. But if that's the kingdom you're praying for and so that everything will go to a way that is comfortable and that all my rights are preserved so I can live in, in freedom and comfort, then I am not talking about the kingdom that Jesus talks about in Scripture. This is the kingdom that Jesus is saying to ask for it to come. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do not seek retribution. The mission, the kingdom we are asking for, is for us to manifest the kingdom of God so that the world might turn to him and be saved. And how does that come about? Let me just take the one example. How do we... How, do, how does God go back, back into the public schools? In the hearts and the lives of his children. That's always the way that it's been. Even back in Deuteronomy 6, his word is imprinted on our hearts as we go. It's not about public statements. It's about lives of people being transformed and changed and being the body of Christ in a lost and dark and hurting world. And pointing to our Father in heaven. That's how he says the kingdom comes. And there is a day when Jesus will return in power and judge the living and the dead. But until then, the way of the kingdom on earth that Jesus is talking about is not through power, but through suffering. Do you want that kingdom? Now there are people, I need to make note of this because it does come up every once in a while. There are people who will say, no, this sermon from Jesus is about what it will be like in heaven someday. So he's talking about the kingdom of God in heaven and that eventually when Jesus returns, that's what he's talking about. It. But until then, we've got to be smarter than that. We're fighting a different battle and so we have to have different methods. That this, He's not talking about how we're supposed to function on earth. And I would just respectfully say that that makes zero sense. And let me tell you why. Because... Much, if not most, of what Jesus says in this sermon makes no sense if we're thinking about heaven. How do you love your enemies in heaven when there's no one trying to destroy you? How do you turn the other cheek in heaven when no one strikes you? How do you forgive others if no one wrongs you? How do you become a peacemaker if there's always peace? See, Jesus is very clearly talking about here and now. 
he's very clearly talking about the already not yet kingdom, that he has come and the kingdom is at hand and now the kingdom spreads like yeast, like a mustard seed. Small things become big things. And he says, there's going to come a day that I'm going to come back in power. But right now, between now and then, it's like you're living in the already not yet kingdom. It's here, and it's still to come. He's saying, this is how it comes. So pray this way. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Do you want that kingdom? I'll be honest and say I don't always. Like there are, there are days where I am just like, God, I, I know, I know that this is how you're manifesting the kingdom here and I know this is my part in it, but I gotta be honest, I don't really want that. I'd rather have a different kingdom. Like how about we work out something where it's like kinda like I'm just kinda your right hand man. You still get to be king, but I'm just gonna, you're just gonna take all of my suggestions really, really strongly and just let me kinda do what I wanna do, but like you're still, you're still God. And this kind of bargaining happens. But I know better. This doesn't always get to my heart. Do we want his kingdom here? Do we want to live as kingdom people in the world? If so, then we must lay down our lives. We must give up the treasures of the world in our hearts and stop pursuing those things. Stop trying to make peace with the kingdom of the world and just realize that our calling is to live for him. It means you'll be called to give things up. It means you'll be called upon to love your enemies. It, will, it means you'll be called upon to forgive those who have wronged you, to resist retribution, to confront anger and lust. Now, Jesus is returning, as we said, and when he does, we will all be held to account, which also shapes how we function today and it's in this. Even when we get to that place where we say, okay, no, I know that right now the road is marked with suffering. But, but there's going to come a day where Jesus is coming back. Yes, we affirm that absolutely 100%. And often when we do is we say, okay, no, I get it. I, I got to be willing to be wronged. I got to be willing to, to go to lay down my rights over here. I got to be willing to do that. And okay, I'm willing to do that. And we look around the world and we say, okay, I'm not going to seek retribution on you. I'm not going to judge you, but just wait till dad gets here. <laughs> He's going to sort you out. And what that does is it creates an air of smugness about us. And there is Nothing Christ-like about being smug. Yes, Jesus is coming back, but I promise not a single one of us will feel smug on that day. We will all stand before Jesus and be struck with terror at first because of who he is. None of us will be able to stand before Jesus and just say, Hey man, what's up? He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Through him, all things were created. Not one thing came into being that was not through him. And our sin, so great, that required a 
sacrifice of that magnitude that we might be reconciled to God as sons and daughters. And I believe that the weight of that will hit us. And at the same time, because of his grace, we will be hit with a depth of love and grace and mercy like we have never experienced here on earth. And we will understand the tension of those things colliding in our hearts, and it will be more than we can even handle. But one thing is for sure. No one will stand before Jesus on that day and feel smug about anything. So why on earth would we feel it now? As only out of ignorance. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This prayer is a prayer for the kingdom of God to be manifested in us, that the world would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. I was just talking with someone, and they said that in the midst of some struggles, that they were dealing hard struggles, they felt God's presence, and that gave them peace. Being at true peace, not just like a fluffy kind of like, oh, I feel better for a second, but true, deep, abiding peace in the midst of hard circumstances is manifesting the kingdom. I talked with someone else who spoke of how they've gone from trying to convince people that, that they're wrong, trying to win the debate, because they love them and want to win the debate and want to prove to them. They've gone from that to loving them and letting the Spirit of God speak through the Word of God and praying for them to have ears to hear rather than trying to win an argument. That is the kingdom of God manifesting. I've seen people forgive unimaginable hurt, leaving it to God to bring justice. Things that if we heard, we would say, I don't... I don't think I could ever forgive that. I don't know how I could forgive that. And I've seen by the power of the Spirit them forgive. That is the kingdom of God manifesting. I've seen people lay down legal battles to get money that they're owed in order to preserve their witness. That is the kingdom of God coming to earth. If that is how the kingdom of God comes, then no wonder it is the meek and the poor in spirit who are blessed. No wonder it's those who hunger and thirst for true righteousness that they're filled because they're abiding in Christ. They seek the treasure of the kingdom. They experience the peace and the joy that comes with abiding Jesus. In short, as we often say, they're bulletproof. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. 
perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. It's passages like this, by the way, that make me always laugh about evangelism training. Because if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian and you read that, how many of you are signing up for that? We're afflicted every way. Like we're perplexed. We're forsaken. But no, 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 you're not destroyed. You're not crushed. Could be worse. Could be the Wisconsin way of translating that. Can't complain. Could be worse. Could have been crushed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. It is only in the death that people see in that that the life of Christ is able to be exalted and glorified. It's people who are suffering and dying of an illness who say Jesus is enough. He's worth it. It's the missionary who goes somewhere that is hard, a hard place and says, I'm going. It's worth it. Our motivation for praying that is that what he is offering is far better, both here and now and in the future, both. And that's what Paul says. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And we asked the question that we asked a few weeks ago, what do you see? What do you see? Remember, this is Paul talking about light momentary affliction. Here are some of the things that he thought were light momentary afflictions. Being imprisoned, being beaten, being abandoned, being exiled, giving up everything, being poor, All those things, light momentary afflictions. How? Because he sees the kingdom that Jesus is offering. And he's like, that's a no-brainer. So hear the word of God. Because no trial today that you would be facing is wasted as it produces steadfastness and makes us complete. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As we know what we're praying for, that there is nothing we can lose that compares to the joy of being known by Christ. If you're facing something that you're losing, hear Paul, indeed, I count everything as loss. Not just the things I'm actually losing, but everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. To know that whatever you're facing, there is no weakness that does not display Christ's power in you today. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
See, praying that the kingdom come means asking for the kingdom that Jesus offers. And though it looks strange to the world, seeing by the power of the Holy Spirit that it is a treasure hidden in a field, that it is worth everything. And I would just suggest that if you are struggling to really believe that and to see that, it may be that you are trying to hold in tension two kingdoms, two worlds. You want this over here, but you also want this. And as Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. It is only in the forsaking of this that we are able to experience the true beauty and treasure of the kingdom that Jesus offers us. And the life he is offering is far better. That kingdom is far better. Why would you chase after other things? The peace he is offering is far greater. The joy he is offering is far more abundant. That is what you can experience now in the kingdom coming to earth. But the question is, do you see it? Do you want it? If you do, then pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next week, Jeff is going to break down the rest of the prayer, like I said, and I'm excited for everybody to hear that. But in preparation, I'm going to ask you this. I'm going to ask and I'm going to encourage you this week to pray this every day. I would encourage you to do it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. The prayer becomes so much more meaningful and we can understand so much more when we read the context around it. So read it in the context of the Beatitudes. Read it in the context of Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 and Matthew 7. Read it in the context and say, okay, God, this, this is who you are. You are our Father. And this is what you are offering. Your kingdom has come. Your Father who cares for you, the Holy One who's above all things, seeing the kingdom he is offering and all that it promises. Ask yourself, do you want that? If yes, then pray for it. Now, Notice that very first word in the whole thing is our. It's our Father. Jesus doesn't say, hey, pray this way, my Father or your Father. He says our Father. And yes, we should be praying this in our own hearts. We should withdraw and pray this in, in the quiet, but we also, also should pray it together. And because of all those hands, I know that that is not foreign to you. And so I want to pray this together, but I'm going to ask two things. One, if it feels weird at all, we do pray corporate prayers sometimes. And, the, and um, what we say about that often is when people say, well, I just feel like we should only pray like spontaneous prayers and we shouldn't pray written prayers. And I would say, okay, well, then maybe next week we'll just try singing spontaneous songs. Right? So everyone just sing your own song. You're like, we'll just stand up here and, you know, whatever. No, we, we, we sing songs together. Why? Because there's something powerful in hearing the voice of one another singing those same things, praising God in that same way. And so it is with corporate prayer. So, so I would say be free as we're going to do this. But secondly, this is a little more challenging, but as you know, we just, just want to meet God here. 
I mean, I ask. Only pray this if you want this. If you don't, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, I don't know what I believe, I don't, then I do not want to compel you to pray this at all. You have my full blessing and permission to either sit quietly with your arms crossed or with your arm, like however you want to sit. You can be defiant in it. I, like I, whatever, you can mouth the words. I won't tattle. No one's going to be upset with you, right? You can do whatever makes you most comfortable. But if you are hearing this and you're saying, I, I do want that. I want to want that. Then let's pray this together like you want it. So let's pray as Jesus instructed us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we need you to stir our hearts to want to pray this. Because Jesus, when you give us this instruction of how to pray, you are not giving us some kind of incantation, but you are instructing us how to pray. And Lord, it is so telling that you would want to remind us. Lord, we are praying to our Father who reconciles sinners and adopts them and turns them into sons and daughters. That you are holy, the name above all names, the creator of all things, the only true and holy just and judge. One who has given us his very son. So how with him will you not graciously give us all things. Lord, forgive us for how we want our own kingdoms. Let us pray our kingdom, your kingdom come, not ours. Your will be done, not ours. But let us see what is good and beautiful and true and just and merciful about your kingdom and about your will. And let us desire that. This can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.